Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom and the American way. We're going to get to your calls in just a minute. First, I just wanted to bring you up to date on some of the news of the day, particularly some things that I think are particularly relevant and interesting. On the electoral front, on the who's going to be the Democrat running for president, actually, front, some fascinating reporting by the Huffington Post. This is actually independent reporting that they've done. I tend not to visit Huffington Post very often because they're constantly throwing unwanted, loud video at me, and it, it's just very difficult. But this, I made an exception, and Louise pointed this out to me, and I went over and checked out their website. And the headline is, Mainstream Media is Blowing Its Coverage of Elizabeth Warren's DNA Test. I wouldn't call it blowing it. I would call it slanting it. The Washington Post, for example, said this is when Elizabeth Warren did her DNA test. The Washington Post said, enraged tribal groups and other minorities concerned about her reliance on the test to measure ethnicity, injected uncertainty over the decision-making by Warren or campaign staff. Whoa, sounds terrible, right? So how many native elected native leaders had the Washington Post and the New York Times talked to for this reporting that Native Americans were upset about Elizabeth Warren, pointing out that she has Cherokee ancestry? How many did they interview? Zero. Zero, not one. They interviewed some guy who hates Elizabeth Warren, you know, who's an Indian, but that's it. As the author of this piece writes, oops, neither of these studies included comments from any elected tribal leaders. The Post story didn't include comments from native people at all. The Times story, one is a known Warren critic and the other is a congresswoman-elect whose positive comments were buried, a stunning distortion. So then Huffington Post said, okay, well, let's find out what actual you know, elected Native Americans, you know, people who have been elected by the tribes to represent them, what they think about this. Presumably, they'll represent tribal sentiment. HuffPost talked to a dozen tribal chiefs, Native politicians, researchers, and influencers to get a sense of why this narrative is taken off in the media. Because Warren has been a strong ally to tribes. Are the tribal leaders and Native people mad? Turns out, after they interviewed all these tribal leaders, quote from the article, the answer to both those questions was overwhelmingly no. Richard Sneed, the principal chief of the Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians, 
said, wait a second, let's get to some facts here. Senator Warren has always been a friend of tribes. We need all the allies we can get. He goes on to say she's never claimed to be a tribal citizen. She's never used her story of ancestry to her advantage. She just has a story of native ancestry. He says, people tell me that all the time, everywhere I go. I don't think people are trying to gain some status by saying that. There are 573 federally recognized tribes in the United States. Only one has publicly said anything about Elizabeth Warren, and that's Snead, who just said, I think it's great. Dennis Coker, the principal chief of the uh, Delaware's Lenape Indian tribe, said, now this was a personal comment, not on behalf of the tribe, he said, someone who is proud of having that native ancestor, no matter what percentage or what degree it is, in my view, that is a person I honor. I honor people who are looking for their roots. So where did this outrage come from? They could find absolutely no, I mean, there's just like no, this is stuff that the media just made up. I mean, is this trying to take down Elizabeth Warren? I mean, is that what's going on? They reached out to the Cherokee Nation. They talked to Principal Chief Bill Baker, Bill John Baker. He agreed with Hoskins. He said, and I quote, she said that she has Native American ancestors. I wished every congressman and senator in the U.S. had a kinship or felt a kinship to the Cherokee Nation. And then the uh, author of the piece says, if people really want to know how tribal leaders feel about Warren, they should watch the fiery speech she gave at the National Congress of American Indians in February. There were nearly a thousand reputable tribal leaders there, and she stood there and was embraced. This is just an attempt to take her down, pure and simple. And right across the board, all the media is buying into this BS story. Meanwhile, over in the Trump administration, Mike Pence is getting a $10,000 raise today, as are uh, most of Trump's cabinet members. At the same time, he's freezing the salaries of all federal workers, and 800,000 of them are getting totally screwed so that he can have his temper tantrum. His acting interior secretary, now that uh, Ryan Zinke is going off to be prosecuted for all the crimes he committed, his acting interior secretary is registered lobbyist David Bernhard. His defense secretary, acting defense secretary, is defense industry Patrick Shanahan. His EPA is being run by a registered coal lobbyist. Health and Human Services is being run by a registered pharmaceutical ind industry lobbyist. And the Department of Interior, David Bernhardt, an oil industry lobbyist, running our national parks and lands that might have oil. Does the word swamp come to mind? Two other things real quickly. One, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who the conservatives thought they would take her down by putting out a video of her dancing, really good dancing, by the way, when she was in college. And they said that it was when she was in high school, and I don't know why that makes a difference. And they said, oh, isn't this terrible? And it turns out it's like it's gone viral. People love it. But anyhow, she was interviewed by Anderson Cooper for 60 Minutes, which I believe plays on Sundays. So I, I'm guessing that's going to come out this weekend. And Anderson Cooper said, basically, how are you going to pay for your Green New Deal? You want to literally raise trillions of dollars to pay for a massive transformation of America's energy structure and create millions of new green jobs. How are you going to pay for that? Now, before I give you her answer, let me point out that Trump's tax cut shaved one and a half trillion dollars out of the federal budget. We scooped one and a half trillion dollars. We're talking about over a trillion dollars for a Green New Deal structure. Just Trump's tax cut was one and a half trillion dollars. Bush's tax cut was a trillion dollars. In today's dollars, Ronald Reagan's tax cut was over a trillion dollars. So this is what Ocasio-Cortez said. She said, what's the problem with trying to push our technological capabilities to the furthest extent possible? There's an element where, yeah, people are going to start having to pay their fair share in taxes. What is a fair share? 
could be as high as 60 to 70 percent. Now, obviously, you're not in all probability, assuming that you are not one of the 0.001%, you're not going to see that tax increase. That's a tax increase that would only hit people after they start making around somewhere between 3 and $10 million a year. In fact, that was what she specifically cited, dramatic increase on especially high earnings such as $10 million. Cooper says that's a pretty radical move. And she says, yeah, Abraham Lincoln and Franklin Roosevelt were called radicals for their agenda. She said, I think it's only ever been radicals that have changed this country. So if, yeah, if that's what radical means, call me a radical. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, talking big, big stuff. Meanwhile, the first piece of legislation that was introduced in the House of Representatives, H.R. 1, has a whole bunch of pieces to it. And again, why this isn't at the top of the news? Well, it's because the news media refuses to cover issues. And this is pure issues. But this is what the Democrats want to do. And we really should be having a national conversation about this because the Republicans oppose every single one of these things. Number one, they want to streamline voter registration with automatic voting registration when you turn 18, same day registration if you're not registered, if you show up to vote. They think that that could add 50 million new voters to the rolls. They want a commitment to restore the Voting Rights Act, or they're committing to. This is the bill that was gutted by John Roberts' Supreme Court in 2013 in the Shelby County decision. Nationwide early voting, two weeks of early voting nationwide. Citizen-funded elections. For every $1 you get from small donors, the government will match it with $6. Curb foreign funds in U.S. elections. Fix the Federal Election Commission. Stop extreme partisan gerrymandering with independent redistricting commissions like California has. Do away with paperless voting machines. Ethics reform, this is a big deal, requiring the Supreme Court to adopt a code of ethics. Tightening the ethics rules in the White House and the executive branch. Disclosure of presidential tax returns for the previous 10 years as a condition of you know, being able to run for president. And tightening restrictions on congressional conflicts of interest. Fascinating story in the Hill, I believe it was the Hill, maybe it was Politico, about all these members of Congress, all these Republicans who are leaving Congress right now and the great jobs they're getting on K Street for a million bucks a year or more, lobbying on behalf of the tobacco industry and the pharmaceutical industry and the coal industry and the oil industry and, and weird industries you never even heard of, you know. They're all out there. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Hey, you know, you're going to start hearing nonstop weight loss commercials everywhere. And every time you do, I want you to think about Riduzone. It's the only weight loss product I endorse and the one that worked for my wife. Louise wanted to lose a little weight last summer. She read about university research and how one molecule helps regulate appetite. Riduzone is designed to boost levels of that one molecule and your metabolism, too, so you stop craving the wrong foods like too many holiday sweets and you burn calories faster. With her appetite and cravings under control, she said losing weight was easy. She has more energy on her hikes, and she looks amazing. Listen, when diet and exercise aren't enough, get the only weight loss product I endorse, non-prescription, FDA-accepted Riduzone. While supplies last, to use the promo code TOM, T-H-O-M, and receive 30% off a pack of three bottles plus free shipping. Go to Riduzone.com. That's R-I-D-U-Z-O-N-E, R-I-D-U-Zone.com, Riduzone.com. Use the promo code TOM. Riduzone.com. We're going to continue our conversation on the role of misogyny in American politics. 
and race and all this other stuff in this fascinating rat study. There's just some fascinating stuff coming out of this. But first, I want to talk about economics. And Dr. Richard Wolf is with us, the economist and co-founder of democracyatwork.info. His website, also rdwolf with two fs.com. You can tweet him at profwolf, P-R-O-F-W-O-L-F-F. Dr. Wolf, welcome back to the program. Thank you, Tom. Glad to be here. I, it, it's always great talking with you about these issues. You know, when I was a kid growing up, there was this show on TV called Route 66. Martin Milner, and I forget the, his co-host's name, uh, they, they drove in this little car from one end of the country to the other on Route 66. This was, you know, before the interstate highway system had really kind of taken over everything. And every week they would be in a new little town and you knew what the town was because the bank was named after the town. And, there, you know, if it was, uh, you know, uh, Anywhereville, Montana, there would be the Anywhereville Bank and the Any, Anywhereville Motel and the Anywhereville Diner. And, and all the business was local and the, the money stayed in the local economy. And, and, and back then, there, there were there were you know probably over a hundred companies making drugs and lots and lots of retail stores and lots and lots. Of, there was there was diversity in the ecosystem of the economy, and it it seems to me, and you know, correct me if I'm wrong on this, that that diversity has essentially been shattered. That that we now have what looks like monopoly. It's not absolute monopoly because not one company controlling the entire drug industry, one company controlling the entire media world, one company controlling all of retail, but five or six. You know, it seems like every every sector of our economy you can come up with, you can name five or six companies that control more than or in the neighborhood of 80% of the entire marketplace in that industry. Um, how did we get here, and what does this do to an economy and the people who live in it? Well, you're absolutely right. Uh, that is the norm. In economics, there's a term for it. It's called oligopoly. It's when you don't have one, which would be technically a monopoly, but you have a small number, so small that even if they don't formally get together, they can coordinate their behavior, and so they present to the market almost as if they were divisions of one, even though they are technically uh, separate. So yeah, we, 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 see that, that, we, we see this with the airlines, we see it with the drug companies, we see Absolutely. it with the gas, gas stations. That's right, and, and the high tech is like that. And, and, and it's the tendency that we've had in a capitalist economy from the beginning. And I like your historical uh, introduction because that's the issue. We have been working, we the United States, on this problem for at least the last 150 years. The Sherman Antitrust Act of 1890, the Clayton Act of 1914, countless antitrust legal uh, settlements, uh, lower courts all the way up to the Supreme Court. Over and over again, this economic system sees competition among enterprises resulting in the victory of some and the defeat of others, followed by the winners eating and absorbing the losers until there are only a very few left. And the sad thing is, there doesn't seem to be a lesson learned here. Each time it comes to the surface, as it is doing right now, uh, both on the left and right of American politics, it is as if we're discovering something new. It isn't new. It's the same thing we've been trying to control for a long time. And what we've learned is simple. 
You can pass a regulation. You can pass a law. We have done there, done that, been there, done that, and it doesn't work. The companies that want to become powerful enough to set the prices in the market, to control and get around the competition that would otherwise limit them, they find a way to use their wealth to do that, to buy the politicians, to evade the laws and regulations, and that's what we have. And so it is a little painful for some of us to read the proposals, whether they come from Tucker Carlson on the right or from Alexandrina uh, uh, Ocasio-Cortez on the left, for more reforms, because in a sense, that is what we have learned over the last century does not work. What you're arguing is that the system essentially needs to be changed rather than tweaked. I absolutely get that. But my understanding is that in the first couple of years of his presidency, Reagan effectively stopped enforcing the Sherman Antitrust Act, that the last major enforcement of it was initiated by Richard Nixon or his uh, Justice Department and completed by Jimmy Carter, and that was the breakup of AT&T. When Reagan basically suspended those rules, stopped enforcing the law, that kicked off this explosion, the, the mergers and acquisition mania. I mean, it was a big part of the 80s, uh, you know, and it was immortalized in in uh, Michael Douglas's movie, uh, you know, where he's yelling, greed is good. Um, you know, Wall Street was the name of the movie, as I recall. And so why not, at the very least, start by saying, we're going to start breaking up some of these big companies? Well, that would at least be uh, the kind of, of strong reform that we've had. But I hate to tell you, I don't mean to be the bearer of bad news. I would love to be able to suggest or propose another reform of the sort we've had in the past. But we have broken up corporations. You know, uh, Teddy Roosevelt was a president whose nickname was Teddy the Trust Buster, because he went around busting up the trusts, which were the names that we gave to monopolies, you know, a century or so ago. It didn't work. And the sad reality is, even when you break up a monopoly, as, for example, breaking up AT&T into the regional bell companies and so on, all you do is reestablish the very competitive capitalist system which then produces the monopoly. It's like a game in which you know the outcome, and even when you re distribute the pieces of the game, the outcome is already foretold. We have a system that makes it profitable to become an oligopolist or a monopolist. And so the companies, sooner or later, either on their own initiative or in response to the initiative of their competitors, follow suit, and then we get what we've got. Yeah. It's, it's remarkable. So as an alternative, you're going to the, the largest frame here and saying that we need to be questioning essentially this capitalist system and, and replace yes, it with Absolutely. It. And, I, and I think, look, we've, you can think of the last century as a time when we tried very many reforms of all sorts to cope with the monopoly tendency, to cope with the, the depression of the 1930s, the instability of this system. We have tried a dozen programs, taxes and otherwise, to do something about the income and wealth inequality the system generates. We do all of those sincerely. We make an honest effort, and sooner or later this system 
undoes those or gets around them or makes us forget or tries to make us forget. At a certain point, you stop doing that because it is the sign of sanity not to keep doing the same thing when it doesn't solve the problem you're trying to overcome. And that's why I think we're overdue to have that difficult, which I admit, difficult conversation about the system itself instead of trying to fix it in ways we know do not work. But gardeners battle weeds year after year after year, and at some point they don't throw their hands up and say, screw it, I'm not going to grow food anymore. Anymore. Um, you know, it's just like battling weeds is part of the territory. It seems like battling monopoly is part of the territory of having a capitalist system. If we're going to throw out the capitalist system and replace it with something else, we've seen, you know, attempts to, to uh, come up with solutions that are not fundamentally capitalist. The, the, the Soviet Union, for example, um, it didn't work out so well. Uh, you, you look at, you know, China is now, you know, incorporating capitalism into their communism and very aggressively as in Vietnam. Um, where have we seen an alternative to capitalism actually work and produce both prosperity and uh, what, you know, might generally be called freedom? I'd give you two, two answers. Number one, I agree with the criticisms of the Soviet Union and of China. They have things to teach us that they achieved, and they have things to teach us that we must avoid at all costs. And, and we have to learn those lessons just like we have to learn the lessons of what was achieved and what was failed at in capitalism. But I think the human condition is one where precisely you, look, you keep looking for the better alternative. I mean, let me give you an example from your choice here. If we can't defeat the weeds uh, with the mechanisms we've had, we don't say, well, we give up. We begin to say, okay, we have to look in a different way. Maybe the, the last 50 years of using pesticides and uh, insecticides and, and herbicides are not the way to go. We have made a mistake. We have tried to solve the problem, and maybe we should start all over again and say, let's build an organic system, one that doesn't rely on fertilizer and all the rest of it in the traditional way. And I think that's what we have to do uh, in economics. And as to models, I think we already have them. I like to talk about Mondragon in Spain. I like to talk about the Emilia-Romagna uh, area of Italy, because those are places in the world that have tried to change the system at the base by reorganizing the enterprises so they are not profit-driven. They're driven by the kind of community benefits that an industry ought to serve as its primary bottom line, rather than the profits of a relatively small number of people. And I think if you look at Mondragon over the last 50 years, or Emilia-Romagna over the last 50 years, you can see the practical results of an economic system based on a different premise. And given how difficult it is to continue with a capitalism that isn't working real well and wanting to avoid the pitfalls of the early efforts at socialism that didn't work out well enough, it might be wise now to go in the direction of a different organization of the enterprise that so it isn't run by a few people, whether they're private individuals or government officials, but run democratically. That might give us a solution that would make us regret that it took us so long to get to it. Remarkable. Professor Richard Wolff, the economist, co-founder of democracyatwork.info, author most recently of Capitalism's Crisis Deepens, essays on the global economic meltdown. Uh, Dr. Wolff, thanks a lot for dropping by. Okay, and happy new year to you. Thank you. Happy new year to you too, sir. Thank you. 
You're listening to Tom Hartman. This is fascinating. This is this is how quickly things are changing in the United States. I, and, and I think that the the corporate media is getting whiplash from this. You know, we're, we're dealing with race and racism and have been in a large way since the election, really since the nomination of Barack Obama to be president of the United States and on the public stage in open discussion. But there's been very little conversation. Even the nomination of Hillary Clinton and her winning three million more votes than Donald Trump, even that really didn't spark a conversation about misogyny. I think just like, you know, Barack Obama really didn't want to discuss race on the campaign trail. Hillary Clinton really didn't want to discuss gender. And, and when she did, it was kind of, well, there's also that. But I think this is a front and center issue. Let's get back to the conversation. And the other thing I'd like to point out to you is that now that the Democrats control the House of Representatives, now that Nancy Pelosi is a speaker, a woman who, uh, as her daughter said on CNN yesterday or the day before, she'll cut your head off and you won't even know you're bleeding. This is going to get interesting. By next week, we're going to see the full formed shape of what a Democratic House is going to look like. And, you know, from the point of view of Donald Trump, it's going to be pretty shocking. This is a guy who's never run for political office. He's never held political office. He's never had to negotiate or legislate anything. Everything has always been on his own terms, whether it's success or failure. It's been on his own terms. He got his first million dollars when he was three years old from his father. In fact, you know, the first million in his trust fund. He got over $460 million from his father's estate. And that was back when a million dollars was a lot of money. And he managed to blow it all and declare bankruptcy multiple times. This guy has no idea about consequences. The reckoning is coming. That should have been the poster in front of Trump yesterday. You know, uh, the, the reckoning is on its way. Michelle in Riverview, Florida. Hey, Michelle, thanks for listening. What's on your mind today? Hi, thanks for taking my call, Tom. I Now, I heard you earlier talk very astutely about religiosities, especially the Abrahamic religion's influence on misogyny in the U.S. already. So I thought I'd talk to you about it from a personal perspective. I grew up in a really strictly Catholic household, and even at a young age, I grew really disgusted of its double standard misogyny, like all through Catholic school and church sermons and youth groups and teen groups and retreats. We always seem to have it drilled into our heads that Mary always had to be the virgin, but nobody ever talks about Jesus being a virgin. And when I was in Catholic school, just in my teen years, I remembered everybody preaching about women and teenage girls saving themselves for marriage, but they never really seemed to emphasize that uh, with men and teenage boys. So you know, among other reasons, I no longer practice the religion, but I notice that my sister and mom still cling to it. And it seems like while they are really subservient to the Catholic Church, and, you know, they also seem to have that same subservience with men. And I, on the other hand, have grown more free-thinking and egalitarian as an adult. And, you know, I, I just don't really subscribe to that. And I don't want to trash on my mom and sister because they're essentially good people. But I, I can see where religion or Christianity ties into their views of men and 
why they believe men should be in charge of things and because they're in charge of the know, church women and, shouldn't yeah i agree yeah. and this is this yeah. is why the catholic church needs to start ordaining women and they need i mean this i agree you know it's just like mm -hmm. this is like a thousand years overdue mm -hmm. <laughs> it's a real problem and and this idea that you know if if the, the pope is always a man the bishops are always men the cardinals are always men the priests are always men what does that say to little girls what does that say to all of us it says you know oh, the men should be in charge and so when a woman is in charge it's like well that's not normal and what's not normal is what the catholic church has been doing all these years i'm with you michelle thank you for the call and you know hopefully even our religious institutions will start to wake up i know a lot of churches have already this is the tom hartman program i should say a lot of denominations have already churches too Here's a New Year's resolution that's easy to keep. Make 2019 your most comfortable and productive year ever by getting yourself an X chair. I used to constantly feel uncomfortable throughout the workday until I realized I was spending thousands of hours sitting in the wrong chair. So follow my example and ditch that no-name superstore chair and trade up to the X chair. I've been raving about how much I love my X chair for, geez, years. Well, if you're on the fence about buying one, here's great news. Now you can finance the purchase of your X chair for as little as $30 a month. When you sit in it, you'll understand why I love my X chair so much. X chair is on sale now for $100 off. Just go to X chair Tom. That's T-H-O xchairtom.com now. That's xchairtom.com, T-H-O-M. Or call 1-844-4-X-CHAIR. X-CHAIR comes with a 30-day, no questions asked, guarantee of complete satisfaction. Go to xchairtom.com now and use the code TOM, T-H-O-M, to get a free footrest. xchairtom.com. Dinah in New Jersey. Hey, Dinah, thanks for watching us on YouTube. What's up? Hey, Tom. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Uh, great uh, discussion today. Um, of course, I'm nervous, so bear with me. Okay. I'm going to float. I don't believe this necessarily, but I'm going to float out an idea for an open, free exchange of ideas and take the script from uh, what men have showed us uh, through thousands of years. Well, for one, women are natural caretakers and very understanding where extremely overly apologetic, which is something that's ingrained in us. But the thing is, is that what if women took exactly the same laws and rules that men have pushed on us for thousands of years and flipped the script and turned it on them, where all male DNA databases, then there would be no more deadbeat dads. We would have less unsolved rape and sexual assault attacks not being investigated. Even the possibility of, not that I would be for it, but, uh, you know, put all males in uh, chastity uh, belts and all women hold the key until we figure out what the hell is going on with them. Jeez. Because uh, there's an issue where they are forming cults now. We have incels and men's rights groups and throughout history women have been murdered and beaten and nothing has been done about it. And um, now we have all these incels and weirdo uh, men's rights groups, chauvinistic groups, patriarchy groups, um, all running around. And it's getting quite scary out there for women. We are constantly under attack. We're constantly threatened, degraded, humiliated. And just to float the idea, you know, of the libertarian, Republican, conservative ideas 
and flip the script and use it on them just to flip the idea out there and see how they react to Dinah, it. your idea that you're floating is Tucker Carlson's nightmare. I mean, this, you know. I know. When, when, I know. When Tucker so Carlson. I'm not for it, and I know that it doesn't make, you know, I know that uh, men will flip out by, you know, <laughs> posing this theory out there. But, you know, hey, men have infamously created the most horrible, torturous devices to be used on women. Mm. And what if we just took their, what? hey, men come up with the best ideas, right? They're so great that they've been ruling over us all across the planet for thousands of years. So why don't we take those great ideas and enforce those laws and enforce those uh, tactics and uh, rules and devices? And frankly, why don't we ban pants uh, where it was illegal for them to wear pants so they can have their ways with us? And I love the woman, the previous caller's idea about um, the whole uh, patriarchy and religion and how a woman should be uh, should save and treasure and uh, save her uh, virginity, her purity for a man. But yet, where are all the, you know, well, now, you know, there's a bunch of virgin men running around killing people. Right, uh, right. The, the, the incels, yeah. Yeah, I got it. The involuntary assault. Apparently, Stephen Miller is one of these guys. He he uh, apparently tried to spray on hair to pick up girls. I mean, at least what I'm reading in the media. It's bizarre. Dinah, thank you for the call. It's uh, very thought-provoking. We'll be right back. Tom Harmon here with you. Remarkable. A few people responded on Twitter. One of them said, uh, this is Scott, uh, a.k.a. Captain Canuck. Uh, Tucker Carlson is misogynist, afraid of economically secure women who can't be dominated by cash. And that can't be dominated by cash, I think, a really important part of that. And then Stephanie Saxto says, holy blazing bleep balls. I have heard it all. They don't want to listen to scientists on global warming. But by God, these women making more money than a man is a disaster to society. Right. Well, Justin in Lincoln, Nebraska, what do you think about that? I don't know if I agree or disagree. I, I, I can say that uh, women are making more money. I'm not saying all of them do, but... No, most uh, of them don't. That I'm in my early 30s, but I'm going to say that from my experience and working a handful of different jobs, I, I do see women supervisors, and, you know, they're, you know, I've been hired by some women, and I, I just I don't feel that there's, like, you know, inequality when it comes to pay, or at least that's not what I'm seeing. I do see other inequalities, like I see a lot of supervisors not wanting to hire pregnant women or women who have kids because they may have to go pick them up from school or something like that. And Why, why don't employers stop hiring fathers? Uh, I don't know. I suppose mainly because the court system has, you know, granted custody mainly. I mean, if we're talking divorce, but... Uh, I mean, you know, they grant. Yeah, I'm not talking about divorce. Woman. I'm talking about parenting. Um, Justin, I, right. you know, the, 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 the wanna, simple. I really enjoy your show. I just want to throw that out there. I've been watching. No, I, I get all that. I agree I, with you. Justin, this is not a, a, a Trump uh, a cabinet meeting. You don't, you don't need to suck up to me. Uh, I, you know, and I appreciate your comments, but the, 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 the simple reality is, number one, women earn about 78 cents for every dollar that men earn when you average the whole thing. And number two, I, I think one of the reasons why you're seeing more women in management, if you were to compare their credentials, their academic credentials to those of men, you've got more women graduating from college with higher grades now, and this has been going on for you know, well over a decade. So I'm guessing that they're probably even overqualified in some cases in the in these well, cases. And, well, and yeah, I mean, you and, know, you know men are, men, guys saying, 
you know, I, I watch these MGTOW guys. Sorry for interrupting, but I'm just saying, you know, they're saying that, oh, well, the, the father is paying for the college or the boyfriend or the husband is paying for the woman to yeah. go to college. And he's not getting anything out of it. I can kind of see that. Well, this is this is you know what you, what you're talking about are the are the are the pieces the the you know the the spokes of our culture, and and this is the stuff that we need to be challenging. This is this is the stuff that we need to be asking: Is this really you know important and appropriate? There are some areas where you just have to acknowledge biology, but there is a whole world of other things where biology is a very very tiny piece of it all, and culture is the big thing. And I think that that's what we're confronting here and what we need to be discussing. Justin, thanks for the call. Carol in St. Paul, Minnesota. Hey, Carol, what's up? Oh, hey, Tom. Um, this whole misogynistic thing has really uh, raised a lot in me because I'm sort of around in your era, so I lived through the, the end of and the beginning of or the transfer to something else. Yeah. But to me, the best illustration that I have seen recently is the Kavanaugh hearings. Mm. If if a woman who was nominated for the Supreme Court had had somebody come in and make a speech like, um, and I can't remember her name. Christine um, uh, Blasey Ford. Yes. If a woman and a man had come in and made a speech against that woman, and that woman had come in the next day and screamed and yelled and carried on like Brett Kavanaugh did, she would have been described as hysterical. Yes. What I heard him described as powerful. Yeah. Tough. Tough. Yeah. Yeah, these and are the this I is think that is a perfect example of what we're talking about. I think you're exact you're you're absolutely right and that is a perfect example and and, and it's you know, it's right in front of our face. Well said Carol. Thank you very much for sharing that. That was that that was an important one. Rich in Indiana. Hey, Rich, what's on your mind today? Thank you, Tom. Um, you give us the words, and without the words to uh, latch an idea onto, uh, we're stuck. So there is this term, intersectionality. And intersectionality is a concept that came from women's studies and um, the women's liberation movement, where there is a... Uh, an understanding of allies far more than just the immediate sense that everybody there there is the the, the idea of solidarity mm -hmm. solidarity as a term as an idea is just a a smidgen less than intersectionality intersectionality we are all in the same boat so, so your point, Rich, can you, can you boil that down to a sentence, please? Intersectionality permits us to stop hating. Okay, stop. got it. And therefore, good thing and we need more of it, right? Yeah, and if you would reach out to Camille Paglia, she had a book that I uh, saw a front piece of, Free Women, Free Men. Yeah. I would I would rephrase that. I would take intersectionality as a word. Most people don't know what it means, but I think if you replaced integration, you know, with that word, that we need to be integrating male male and female roles. We need to be integrating, um, you know, race racially, gender wise, all these things. We need to be collaborating. I, I would go with it. Rich, thanks for the call. Mike in uh, Winnicon, Illinois, uh, Wisconsin. Am I saying your town right, Mike? Winnicott. Connie. Okay. So what's up, Mike? 
at the, the doctor before the election, we got in a conversation of a president's, and the nurse informed me that the presidency was no place for a woman. And here these are educated, college-educated women that were thinking that they were compliant with earning less than men and that women, you know, should be in their place. Well, this is like African-Americans internalizing the story of, of, of uh, African-American inferiority. This is women internalizing the story of female subservience. These are all really destructive cultural memes. But this is typically what happens when you've got an overclass that is suppressing an underclass. I saw this in Appalachia among poor white people, you know, feeling like, well, you know, we can never kind of get a break. There must be something wrong with us, you know. And no, it's the systems that are broken. Well, for sure. And it's just sad to, to hear educated people, you know. Yeah, yeah, it is, it is pretty shocking. But that is the ultimate proof of how important it is to change the system itself, to, to change society's perceptions. Mike, thanks for the call. Patricia in Bellevue, Washington. Hey, Patricia, what's up? I just wanted to tell you that the, the misogyny is making fantastic progress in destruction. The West Coast yacht clubs are now accepting women as their commodores. A few years ago, women couldn't even belong. Yeah, or I think if they belonged. They were second class. They were not. They were uh, auxiliary. They weren't first. Right. They were. They were. Their title was typically mate. I, you know, Louise and I lived in a boat in Washington D.C. at the Capitol Yacht Club for seven years or for six years, and during that time, the best, in my opinion, the very best commodore that we had was a woman named uh, Freddie. I, I shouldn't say her last name on the air. She was spectacular. She was a, you know, a retired lawyer and uh, just a brilliant Commodore. Yes. So when uh, I belonged to two or three yacht clubs, mm -hmm. and uh, 20 years ago when we joined, um, they, they wouldn't even put, print the women's photograph in, in the yearbook. Right. Right. And then they said that they weren't members. They weren't full <laughs> members. But now... They say they accepted the point that they, they will be commodores, they're on board of directors, they're on uh, running the things, and they're always the ones who made money. So the, the, yeah. uh, the art clubs always wanted a source of money, and they were happy to use the women's efforts, but they didn't give them uh, recompense for that. They, they weren't accepted as full members. Yeah, I, I'm familiar with that history. And Patricia, you're absolutely right. It's a great thing that things are changing. Uh, Chris in Corvallis, Oregon. Hey, Chris, what's up? I think with the Washington Post op-ed by Mitt Romney and uh, Elizabeth Warren's announcement, I think the field for 2020 is basically set. And I think it's time that the country, as Elizabeth has said, to have that fundamental conversation. Do you uh, think in 2020 it's going to be Romney versus Warren? Romney said corporations are people, my friend. Um, I think she's the best opportunity to, we have to... He's going to be the strongest opponent, and she's the best counter to him. Mm -hmm. I, I think, think I think you're right. At the same time, I think that Mitt Romney is as amoral, not immoral, as amoral as Trump. And I think um, he's trying to bring the party with that op-ed back to Reaganism. He's going to run on that, I was right on Russia. Yeah. And I, I think a young person like uh, Beto is not going to be a strong enough counter. I think Elizabeth Warren, it's her time, a lot of hardworking women women out there. It's their time. Uh, you know, um, I, I, I get it, uh, Chris, and, and well said. Jason in Vancouver. Yeah, thank you, Tom, for taking my call. And um, I just want to say on the misogyny thing real quick, um, I, I just feel like with the way how inequality is so 
much in the United States. If there was a woman that was to the left of Bernie, I would be for that woman over Bernie. And if Bernie doesn't make it through the primary, I mean, Elizabeth is my second. Yeah, me too. Choice, that's just my, I don't think you can bottom. get to the left of Bernie, but yeah, <laughs> I agree. No, I hear you. I hear sure. you. But um, as far as Pago goes, um, <clears throat> I just feel like Nancy Pelosi, and from what I've heard on the Young Turks, is that the Pago is uh, going to undercut a lot of progressive policies. And I've heard you say earlier that if we've gotten it off the rules, then you know, then the then Republicans could, or Trump could do damage to Medicare. But um, well, it's not that. that. It's Jason. The law would require him to. This is the thing that people don't get. The Pago law. There's two things. There's the law and then there's the rule in the House, right? And there's a rule in the Senate, and they're pretty much identical. The Pago law says that if you, uh, if you pass legislation that might influence the national debt, the, you know, spending money or tax cuts, either one that would raise the national debt, you have to pay for that. You have to pay for it either by raising taxes or cutting spending. That's what the law says. Now, the law also says in the law, that the law itself may be waived by a body of Congress using their PAYGO rule. So the rule is the tool that you use to waive PAYGO. And the Republicans, the classic example, was the Bush tax, or the uh, Trump tax cuts. The Trump tax cuts blew a $1.5 trillion hole in the, in the side of the budget in complete violation of the PAYGO law. But the House, it, because they had PAYGO rules, they used their rule to put a waiver on PAYGO. And the Senate, because they had the rule, the PAYGO rule, they put a waiver on PAYGO. And therefore, they, you know, it passed and it was signed by the president with, with, with the waiver intact. So if Pelosi blows up the PAYGO rule in the House of Representatives and legislation is proposed uh, even just normal funding legislation. I mean, the, what they're looking at right now is Medicare. You know, if, if Medicare, you know, the, gets rebooted for another year for funding, it will increase the budget slightly, but it'll increase the budget. Well, the PAYGO law requires that Medicare be cut, and we're looking at billions of dollars in cuts. I mean, actual, uh, in fact, the, the specific amount is, is quantified in this Medium article that I, that I shared. Um, it'll be a $150 billion a year uh, spending cut overall, and, and a good chunk of that would come out of, uh, would come out of, oh, Medi it'll cut, it'll reduce Medicare funding by 4%. That's billions of dollars. So the only way to prevent that is to put the waiver of the PAYGO law into the legislation, and the House can only do that if they retain the PAYGO rule. And so it's, it seems completely upside down that you've got to keep the rule in order to ignore the law. But that's the bottom line. End of rant. Because there's a lot of hysteria that the that the corporate Democrats are going to use this to undercut progressive agenda over the next two years, and I'm just curious, like the way that the way the corporate Democrats can use that, Jason, is is by blowing up the paygo rule in the House of Representatives, and then every single piece of legislation that Nancy Pelosi gets out of the House is going to have the paygo law, the razor of the paygo law, attack it. If you're worried about the corporate Dems, I'm guessing they're the ones who are saying, hey, let's blow up Pago. Although it seems that there's a few progressives who are out there saying it, too. I don't get it. Actually, I do, but I think they're confused. You're listening Jason to Dex. the Tom Hartman program.
If your New Year's resolutions include taking better care of yourself and being smarter with your finances, Harry's has you covered. Plus, you'll get a great shave in the bargain. Esquire Magazine was so impressed, they awarded Harry's their 2018 Grooming Award. Harry's smooth, comfortable glide and close shave will have you hooked in no time. I won't shave with anything but Harry's. Harry's wants to help you start the new year off right. New customers get a five-blade razor, weighted handle, shave gel, and travel cover for just three bucks, plus free shipping. Just use Tom, T-H-O-M, at Harry's. Com. Harry's replacement cartridges are just $2 each, and if you don't love your shave, you'll get a full refund from Harry's. For a limited time only, Harry's has a special offer for listeners to this program. New customers get $5 off a trial set from Harry's with the code TOM, T-H-O-M, at harrys.com. That means you get a razor, weighted handle, foaming shave gel, and travel cover, all for just 3 bucks, plus free shipping when you use the code TOM at Harry's. Join the millions who've already switched and get on over to harrys.com today and use the code TOM, T-H-O-M, at checkout to claim your offer. Anyhow, just to put a nail on the Pago thing, this all started with an article in The Intercept that was uh, titled, Nancy Pelosi Rams Austerity Provision Into House Rules Package. Uh, whoever wrote The Intercept piece completely misunderstood what was going on. And then Ocasio-Cortez and Ro Khanna read it and said, holy cow, if it's in The Intercept, it must be right, and went off on it. And now their own caucus, now the two leaders of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, Mark Pocan and Pramila Jayapal, are tweeting and arguing and whatever that, no, we have to have the PAYGO rule in order to waive the PAYGO law. Otherwise, we surrender our power to the Republicans in the Senate, and they're right. Amnesty International pointing out that Trump's Customs and Border Protection troops, the CPB, this is Tuesday, reportedly hit women, children, and journalists near the U.S.-Mexico border with tear gas, smoke, and pepper spray. Which raises an interesting question. I mean, this is the John Kelly policy of uh, Donald Trump, Stephen Miller, Kirsten Nielsen. This is their policy, is make it very, very painful for people. Take their children away from them. Hit them with tear gas. Make it very painful for people who are fleeing for their lives to get into the United States. Just think about this for a minute. Think about your own home. Think about your children, if you've had children, if you have children, or somebody else's kids, for that matter, if you don't. And think about what it would take for you to get out of bed one morning and say to your family, you know, pull together everything that you can carry in a backpack out of this house. Pull together everything. We're going to walk a thousand miles. We're going to face criminals. We're going to face robbers and rapists and murderers. We're going to face the human traffickers. That's how important it is to these people. Can you imagine what it would take? How bad life would have to be? How desperate you'd have to be before you would take that journey? Shouldn't we be taking seriously the desperation of these people? Paula in Houston, Texas. Hey, Paula, thanks for watching the program. What's up? Hi, Tom. Um, I was just wondering, it, to me, it seems, it, being in Texas, okay, I'm around a lot of immigrants from lots of different places, it seems to me like nobody's talking about the elephant in the room, which is that immigrants, whether legal or illegal, are not going to come here and stay here if there aren't employers that give them jobs. I work for a commercial landscaping company. 
We had undocumented, well, they had documents, but I'm sure that they were falsified. But we had, you know, immigrants on our, our staff. And because we couldn't find many other people that wanted to mow lawns in August. And, you know, it was just understood that that we just kind of looked the other way in terms of their documentation. Right. And nobody seems to be bringing up anything about that. There is a system for verifying Social Security numbers and uh, green card, you know, work permits. It's called E-Verify. But employers are not required to use it. Yeah. It's voluntary. I, I agree, Paula. And this is, uh, you know, I first wrote about this in my book, uh, uh, Rebooting the American Dream, back in uh, 20, geez, 2010, I think it was. And Bernie endorsed it, that we don't have an illegal immigrant problem in the United States. We have an illegal employer problem. And, there you go. And prior to 1986, we used to routinely put employers in jail or shut down their companies if they hired people who were not in the United States legally, as happens in every other country in the world. I lived and worked in both uh, Germany and Australia, and in both cases I had to get work permits. And it was a multi-month process, and it was serious stuff. So, yeah, I'm totally with you. There is a larger issue here, though, you know, kind of in the forest and trees uh, scenario. And that is uh -huh. the, that cheap labor has become crack cocaine in the United States from the Dust Bowl <laughs> era until because the Dust Bowl hit in, in northern Mexico as well. Until the mid 1960s or thereabouts, we had this program, the, the Bracero program. That was mostly in the 1950s during the Eisenhower administration. But there was a wink and a nod when it came to agricultural workers. People, and, and in fact, every year about a million people would come north during picking season, and then they'd go back south at the end of picking season. The border was completely open, and you know, it, we didn't have a problem with, quote, illegal immigration. It's just that there was this low-wage sector called agriculture, and everybody was kind of like, yeah, we want our food to be cheap, so that's fine. Well, when Reagan stopped enforcing the law against hiring people who are not here legally in 86, with his, after his amnesty program, when he stopped enforcing that law, that conventional wisdom spread to every other industry. So then meatpacking, for example, well, you know, we're not going to pay, you know, X, you know, good union wages anymore. People are saying, well, we just can't find people who are willing to work in meatpacking plants. And the, the, the missing part of that sentence is for these crappy wages. And uh, the construction, construction has, you know, the same thing has happened in sector after sector, the back ends of restaurants all over the country. All of these jobs the excuse is, well, we can't find Americans who are willing to work at these jobs, and they never say, because we pay, you know, crappy wages. They're, it's like this crack cocaine. America's employers are addicted to cheap labor, and we need to break that addiction. And we need to break that addiction by simply outlawing. Paula, thank you for the call. Spot on. Tom Harvin here with you. Cruel and inhumane. This is what uh, Amnesty International is calling what uh, Stephen Miller, Donald Trump, and, and Mike Pence just did at the southern border, throwing chemical weapons at uh, children, men and women as well, who were simply trying to achieve asylum status. These are not immigrants. These are, and, and, and it makes me crazy that the media keeps referring to them as immigrants. These are not people who are looking for a job. These are people who are fleeing not just poverty, they're fleeing death threats. Nicaragua now is locked down, it's turned into a police state. In Honduras and El Salvador, you've got death squads. You've, and this is all the result of Reagan's policies back in the 80s that completely disrupted these three countries. And then the refusal of, of subsequent Republican administrations to have anything to do with encouraging democracy in these countries.
we've got just this flaming disaster that's going on. And uh, yesterday, Trump and Pence's CBP, the Customs and Border Protection, throwing chemical weapons at these people, at these so-called violent, it's a violent mob, says Trump. Harry Reid says, Donald Trump is an interesting person. He's not immoral, he is amoral. Amoral is when you shoot someone in the head and it doesn't make a difference. You have no conscience. Reid goes on to say that he's the worst president we've ever had. There's not even a close second. He lies, he cheats, he can't reason with him. You know, Harry Reid would know about this kind of stuff. You know, he has been observing politicians his entire life. Harry, by the way, is, uh, uh, Senator Reid is dying right now from pancreatic cancer. So uh, we all send him our very best wishes. Let's check in with Talk Media News and find out what's going on in the world today. This report brought to you by GoatsForTheOldGoat.com and Ellen Ratner's new book, Loving What You Do. On the line with us is the chief foreign correspondent for Talk Media News, joining us from the U.N. headquarters in New York, Luke Vargas. Luke, welcome back to the program. Thank you. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, too. So uh, the U.S. trade envoys are meeting with the Chinese officials in Beijing. What's the agenda? What's the story here? Well, here's something to consider. You remember back at the G20 meetings, this is very early December last year in Argentina, you had President Trump and Xi Jinping sit down for dinner, and they agreed to a three-month sort of pause on the ratcheting up of tariffs. Uh, right, they were which were supposed to, to increase the first week of December, weren't they? Now they've been pushed out to March 2nd, if okay. I have my timelines correct. Got it. Um, but we have until the very beginning of March to figure out some sort of workable fix to this trade war or else it looks like the tariffs are back on and would be back on in a big way. So that's, you know, December 1st till now, we haven't had a single meeting between U.S. and Chinese trade officials. It's like everyone's just waiting out the clock here. So we're finally going to get a first crack at this. It's kind of interesting to look at the U.S. trade delegation. It's being led by the deputy U.S. trade representative, Jeff Garish, which is important because there had, you know, one thing that I had been telling uh, you to look out for and that experts have been telling me was really important is, you know, is this going to continue to be on the Trump side just a whole big room full of disagreeing voices who all have competing trade agendas. And that had been a big problem for the trade talks through much of last year. You had the Commerce Department, you had Treasury in there, you know, and then just sort of people from the White House team that were uh, sort of uh, bringing in their own demands. And Trump said in at the G20 meeting, look, Bob Lighthizer, the U.S. trade representative, is going to take the lead on this. And I think that's pretty important because mm-hmm. Even though Lighthizer won't be there, his deputy will be. The U.S. Trade Representative's office has been focused on a very different set of bigger structural demands as it pertains to China. Uh, You've seen the Commerce Department and Treasury, particularly Commerce, been sort of satisfied in the past when China tries to dig its way out of the trade war by saying, hey, we're going to buy more soybeans or more rice or something like that. I mean, and particularly the White House likes that. That's the kind of thing that, you know, people in the Oval Office think is pretty easy to sell to President Trump to say, hey, you know, we're narrowing the trade deficit. Mm -hmm. But the U.S. Trade Representative's office is really focused on intellectual property theft, forced technology transfer. And so I think it speaks to the sort of seriousness with which the Trump team, at least on this issue, or and at least for now, and of course that could change, is coming to the table and saying, look, we expect more from them. And, and you really haven't seen much from the Chinese side since the G20. They, they talked about maybe we'll pass a law in the Chinese parliament that will, you know, prohibit uh, the forced transfer of foreign, you know, technology. Maybe we will start treating, you know, foreign firms and domestic firms equally. 
and, you know, all these other things. But the, the U.S. hasn't even responded to any of those proposals, which suggests we don't think they're adequate. So it's curious that the U.S. trade representatives are meaningful, that they're leading this. And let's let's watch what happens. I, again, I think there was a sort of a moment a few days ago where President Trump asked about this, said, look, you know, we're not too worried. The stock market issues in December, I think, what did he say there? Just it's like just a little bit of a jitters or a glitch, I think is what he called it. Right. And then you had Apple come out yesterday and say, oh, no, our guidance for sales is going down. And, and I think sort of panic began to set in. So I'm I'm intrigued to see how this all works out, and I'm sure we'll we'll learn a lot about whether this two months that's remaining before the major tariffs come into effect is a realistic amount of time to hash all of this out. My money is probably on no, and that if if any progress is seen, then maybe the parties will ask for even more of an extension. There's just still so much to work through, and I think that deadline is pretty unrealistic. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to keep track of. Meanwhile, in Saudi Arabia, yeah, we murdered this guy, and now we're going to kill the guys who murdered him? Really? Exactly right. So originally, the Saudis said they arrested 18 people in connection with Jamal Khashoggi's murder, and 11 people were charged. We're learning now that five of them are going to be sentenced to death. We don't even know exactly which individuals. This whole thing has been carried out in a pretty non-transparent way, which surprises absolutely no one who was counting on sort of what we would consider a trial that meets international standards. I think what's very interesting here is you continue to see, though, the kind of countries that could escalate this and and maybe try and get a better trial or force, let's say, the U.N. to get involved, just deciding to sit this out. The U.N. keeps saying the trial that's being done in Saudi Arabia is not sufficient. It doesn't meet international standards. It's not transparent and that an international investigation is necessary. And yet, when you know journalists like myself push the UN and say, hey, well, why don't you guys just open that up? You do have the power to do so. The UN keeps coming back and saying, well, we need a country that's involved in this case to refer it to us. In other Clearly words, the United Saudis, States. It could be or Turkey. Saudis, it could be Turkey. It could be the United States. Clearly, no one's expecting the Saudis to do that. And the US, I think we all understand Trump and his team don't seem eager to want this to be pulled even more into the open. For now, everyone's sort of blaming each other. And I think it's pretty easy to criticize the way the Saudis have handled this whole thing. Are we going to get anything better? It looks pretty unlikely. Yeah. This is a, so Saudi Arabia is going to have an execution and then they'll have an announcement and they'll say that's it and, and dust their hands. Do you think that the rest of the world is going to say, okay, fine? Uh, I mean, the executions for absurd things happen all the time in Saudi Arabia. And, and we say, hey, <laughs> well, that's, that's too bad, but it's pretty hard to get them to change their ways. So I would yeah. expect, unfortunately, that that might be the outcome. We still need their oil. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Luke Vargas with Talk Media News. Thank you, Luke. Thank you, Tom. Take care. Thank you. And you can follow Luke on on Twitter at The Courier. And don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 